Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm awfully glad to have all of you here for today's show, which I think my Friday partner, Patricia Murphy, the political reporter and columnist, political insider columnist for the AJC, will agree we've both been looking forward to for a while now because we're going to get an opportunity to talk to Georgia's Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. In a moment, I'll introduce both of them. But let me uh, first uh, say a couple things about the conversation that I think we're going to have today. Um, uh, early last month, James Homan, who is a columnist for the Washington Post, wrote a column about the Duncan book. And the headline for it reads, Georgia's GOP lieutenant governor conducts the 2020 autopsy his party won't, which I thought was a really interesting way to uh, frame uh, Duncan's book. By now, most of us here in Georgia know kind of the general outlines of Duncan's story. Uh, in the aftermath of the 2020 election, as Donald Trump uh, began uh, his campaign to get Georgia elected officials to join him in calling for uh, an investigation and a uh, decertification of the outcome of the Georgia election, claiming that Joe Biden won by fraud, Jeff Duncan moved away from many of the others in the Republican Party here, insisting that Trump was just plain wrong. And what was particularly interesting about that is that Duncan could have done that quietly. He could have simply, uh, in private conversations with other Republicans, said, look, I don't want to get involved with you. I'm going to stay on the sidelines in this fight. Instead, he saw it as an opportunity to fight for what he believes is a new path the party has got to take. He began appearing regularly on programming like CNN, for instance, uh, to say we had an honest election in Georgia. He then subsequently, as you all know, decided he would not run for re-election, but that his future was going to be in helping try to craft a new vision for a Trumpless Republican Party. Patricia Murphy, have anything you want to add to that before we introduce the lieutenant governor? Uh, I will just say I think that um, in breaking away from uh, the silence of other Republicans, I do think there will be a national role for the lieutenant governor to play in the future. And I think that we'll, this will not be the last we hear of Jeff Duncan if I had to predict what happens um, from here on out. Of course, uh, he'll still be in office through 2022. But then I think after that, there is a constituency for this conversation. It just may not be within uh, the Georgia GOP right now. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, with that, welcome to Political Rewind. We're very happy uh, to have you here and looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I just covered 12 months and three minutes uh, here in both of those recaps. Uh, I'm fully up to speed on, on my, my the last 12 months. Good. Well, is there anything you'd like to add to that uh, uh, before we ask you some questions? No, it's uh, it's been a, it's been an amazing, crazy, uh, un undescribable journey for for the most part. I, I think um, before we dig into uh, uh, the book and and your vision for a different path for the Republican Party, look, you're a former baseball player. Um, we have the World Series coming to town. We have the former president coming in to see a game while they're in Atlanta, and and I have to ask you the politicization. Um, of this World Series, your your fellow Republicans, even Governor Kemp, who immediately after the Braves clinched the pennant, decided to use it as an opportunity to tweet an attack on Stacey Abrams. Um, Democrats uh, countering that we should leave politics out of the World Series. Is there is there nothing, Lieutenant Governor Duncan? that we can just enjoy together, Democrats, Republicans, and independents alike? Well, I, I'm certainly one of those that, that don't appreciate politicizing sports or in, injecting uh, political opinions into sports. I just never thought, you know, I come at it from a former player and, you know, I just, 
you know, when I sit on the couch at 7 o'clock at night and watch the game, I don't want to have to be thinking about politics. I think that's an overwhelming majority of Americans are really in that same mindset. So I didn't think it was a good idea to use politics when the left was doing it uh, on the front end of all of the losing the All-Star game and certainly not, not a fan of the right using this as an opportunity to grandstand. I, I, you know, I, I look at this as Georgia's still the same great state to host a baseball game and to cheer on our hometown Braves uh, now as it was uh, during the All-Star game period. Are you going to be going Patricia? to the World Series? Do you know if you'll be at the World Series? Uh, my kids want us to be, but uh, we're going to be sitting. we got great seats on the couch. Uh, they're, they're a lot cheaper. <laughs> they're already paid for. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, let me quote, uh, as we start talking about the book, uh, f- from your book. And I, I think this quote really sums up an awful lot of the philosophy that led you to make the move you did and, and put you in the position you find yourself in today. You, you said after declaring that you would not support Donald Trump's efforts to declare uh, Georgia a fraudulent election, um, after you started speaking out against efforts uh, to do that, you said, quote, I found myself on an island, one that was getting pounded by bombs and artillery. Lie by lie, the former president sapped the trustworthiness of every single Republican official. Unfortunately, many held to the theory that if more people vote, Republicans will lose. Because they got scared, GOP leaders became too focused on making voting more difficult. Uh, that, that sums it up pretty well. Talk about that. Yeah, a lot packed into those couple of sentences. I think the front end of that uh, conversation was really the realities of standing on stage in Rome, Georgia, two days before the election. And I had you know, I made what I thought was an incredibly good statement. I knew everybody wearing a red hat was already voting for Donald Trump. So as I sat there and stared at 30,000 people, I was really talking to the cameras and the folks in the suburbs and around the country that we're going to be watching. And I said, our policies are so good as Republicans, they even help the people who don't vote for us. And I got booed. And it was an eye-opening experience walking off stage, sitting down with my wife and kids, realizing that we got booed by a group of people that just 18 months prior had voted for us. And uh, or two years prior had voted for us. And so that was an eye opener for sure. Um, And, you know, I'm one of those proud conservatives that believe our policies make sense. They just don't get us elected here in Georgia. They they make sense. They help lead us through, you know, obviously the pandemic. We balance lives and livelihoods in this state. We continue to look for ways to reduce regulation, improve education, make smart investments in things like the port. Uh, Those are things that I think help us when more people show up to vote. Right. I, I, I think a winning strategy for Republicans in Georgia is instead of just five million people voting in the next election, let's get six million, uh, because I think their lives are going to be better uh, than they were when we started this process. Um, uh, if you, I have been so interested reading your book and, of course, covering uh, the entire last year down at the Capitol. Give us a little insight, if you can, about why you have become an outlier, why at the beginning of the process you were one of the few Republicans who really did uh, uh, take a more moderate tone, but then also stand up for the election. What is going on or what was going on then, do you think, um, uh, that put you on one side and so many other Republicans on the other side as the president started to really raise questions about the election? Yeah, you know, this whole GOP 2.0 process started well before the election debacle, right? If, if you go back to my five years in the House um, as a state representative, you know, I, I just I was working with a mindset of, pol- you know, policy over politics. And then I campaigned for lieutenant governor as, you know, the outsider of all outsiders. And, and you know, the crazy thing was the argument against me, even amongst Republicans, during the primary process for lieutenant governor was that I was too conservative. My track record was too conservative to be a legitimate statewide contender. You know, I voted no on House Bill 170, the infrastructure or the, the uh, transportation bill. I voted no on uh, the hospital bed tax. I voted no on a number of other increases that I just didn't agree with. So the flip side to that is then I come into the, come into the Senate as the president of the Senate, and I really put this policy over politics format, which does work with the other side of the aisle, which does create conversation, which does try to work through and, and find consensus on issues. And so I started validating 2.0 well beforehand. And so I, you know, I feel like I've stuck out like a sore thumb since day one in politics. And I'm constantly trying to validate this new way of doing it. And, and I just got to be honest with you, I'm proud of the three years worth of work we've done 
in the Senate, right? Have we gotten everything perfect? No. But I think we've got a lot of things right. You know, I point back to the hate crimes legislation. At a point in time where the world was just literally expecting us to fall flat on our face in the Senate uh, and in the legislature, we, we actually worked together and we got something accomplished that, that I think put Georgia on the map nationally as somebody who's willing to take on those big issues. You also separated yourself from your fellow Republicans as uh, Senate Bill 202 was going through the process, and you refused to even oversee the more conservative, sort of the earliest version, the Senate bill uh, that was even more restrictive. Um, where do you come out now on where uh, SB 202 ended up, and, and how do you think that's going to play out in these next elections? Yeah, so the, the early versions of the bill, bills were just terrible, right? I mean, there was just all these talking points that basically Donald Trump had emailed to somebody probably and said, hey, these need to be included if you want to be in the club. And, you know, I just couldn't stand there. And as the president of the Senate, I don't get a vote. I just, you know, and on the way into the Capitol, I was trying to figure out how to voice my displeasure and disapproval of what was going on. And so I just, you know, impromptu walked off the, the platform. Uh, fortunately, that those bills didn't actually get to the finish line. And the process worked, right? We we in the lieutenant governor's office stood up and worked with, uh, you know, in a bipartisan format and came up with four election reform bills that made sense, right? They actually addressed real problems that were kind of, un, you know, kind of uh, opened up and, and, and viewed upon during the 10 weeks of kind of hyper uh, focus. But they weren't anything that was going to change the outcome of the election. These were just things that just we needed to modernize that we worked with Democrats with. And the final version of 202, you know, if I'm giving it a grade, I give it a B. Uh, no, no bill actually comes through the Capitol and, you know, in my opinion, is 100 percent A. Uh, there's a lot of things that were bipartisan that were in the bill. There was a lot of things that really did make sense. And there was a couple of things that just quite honestly were still punitive swipes in the wrong direction. The food and water thing, you know, I just I still still I can't come up with a reason why it made sense to make it even more illegal to try to entice people to vote with food and water. Uh, if you walk up to somebody who's thirsty and give them a cold you know, bottle of water, uh, and don't ask for them to vote for a certain person that should be okay. Uh, same thing with the with taking Brad Raffensperger off the uh, the election board as a voting member. I thought that you know you, it, the only thing Brad Raffensperger did wrong in this whole thing was become Donald Trump's scapegoat. That was it. Um, but uh, you know outside of that, I, I think the bill would be and how it plays out long term. Look, it's not going to affect the outcome of, of elections going forward. Uh, I think we're going to be able to work through uh, you know all of these elections going. Uh, into the future. And, you know, certainly uh, I hope that uh, we're not uh, having to be swiped at by folks all around the country on how we do elections here in Georgia. So um, I, I want to give you a chance in a minute. You you ha have uh, uh, you talk about what you call the PET project. And in a moment, I want to ask you what exactly that means, because it does sort of uh, it, it's the way in which you uh, actualize your vision for a future, a Trumpless future for the party. But before we even get to that, I mean, you look at the Republican uh, Party's uh, not, uh, 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 candidates right now, on the ballot right now, and virtually all of them are embracing Donald Trump and embracing the big lie. And they do it, although they're not going to talk about this openly. By the way, you do say at one point, how many of your Republican colleagues quietly praised your courage in speaking out against Trump and then went along with him. But the point being, with all of these people lining up, believing that the only path to election is supporting the big lie, supporting Donald Trump, where's the opening for you? Certainly not in the 2022 cycle, and I don't mean you as a candidate, I mean you for the, the concept of a different party. Are you looking ahead to 2024 and how the party might change by, by then? What's, how do you see this all unfolding? So I, I do think it's a mistake to support the big lie for the purposes of trying to, to, to gain favor, right? That's just that's obviously the, I've, I've taken that position from day one. Uh, I do think it's going to take some time for some folks to unwind. I, I was in New Hampshire last week and gave a speech, and, and I was sitting there trying to write the, 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 the right narrative to explain this di dynamic that, that you're talking about, where folks walk up to me privately and say, hey, Jeff, great job. I'm really, you know, really proud of you. Thanks for standing up for the right thing. Man, I wish my district was more supportive, or I, I wish the party gave us more air cover, or I wish Donald Trump would just move out of the way. The, the analogy I used was steroids, right? One, I talk about it in the book. One of the personal decisions I made, my wife and I both made, was uh, in my baseball career to not use steroids, right? A lot of folks around us were using them, and 
I just felt like it was a short-term sugar high, right? I just felt like it was a it was an easy, you know, felt like the path of least resistance, but long-term was a bad idea. Whether it was an immediate injury that was playing out or a long-term, you know, healthcare health concerns or a long-term asterisk next to your name on, on the end of your career and never, you know, getting to achieve the things that you wanted to achieve. That's what's going on now. I think it's going to fade. Uh, every self-inflicted wound that Donald Trump, you know, does on himself, like coming to Perry, Georgia and having the audacity to say to vote for Stacey Abrams over Brian Kemp, uh, as the audacity to telling Republicans to stay home in 2022, 20, uh, uh, those are all self-inflicted wounds that are going to continue to play out. Uh, we want to be the steady hand, the adult in the room, so that when folks start to gravitate towards sanity again and start to gravitate towards leadership, like real leadership, that 2.0 is standing there ready to, to, to take, take them into the fold and start winning again. Patricia? Are you worried that Donald Trump is going to just irrevocably change what it means to be a Republican? Is there going to be a point at which um, he is the party? And to be in the party means that you are ascribing to Donald Trump's uh, worldview. Um, how much is left over for uh, the type of Republican that you are, which is uh, kind of more principle-based and more moderate in tone? What's, what's left after Trump? Well, certainly there's a future. The Republican Party is going to last longer than Donald Trump. Uh, and, uh, you know, like I, I get asked often, you know, hey, are you thinking about becoming an independent or switching parties? And the answer is absolutely not. I'm a Republican. And, and, and for the record, I've been a Republican a lot longer than Donald Trump has been. Uh, I'm not going anywhere. And it's going to take somebody bigger and stronger than him to push me out of my own party. Uh, I believe in the values. Um, and, yeah, certainly it is. Uh, it feels as though he's you know, completely driving the ship. But people are going to get to a GOP 2.0 through three lanes. There's going to be some like me that just believe in it from start to finish. There's going to be some like like my parents' friends that are just, you know, they, they love Donald Trump. They're in an older kind of demographic, but they just wish he would have put his phone down. They can see the, the easiness to the tone cost of him. And then you're going to get a whole group of folks that are just going to get tired of losing. I mean, think about the gravity of this, right? Mayors are going to lose races. City council members are going to lose races. You know, congressmen and women are going to lose races all across the country because they won't admit out loud that they don't believe in the big lie or they did admit that they believe in the big lie. That's going to be the narrative. And so 22 has the makings of being this massively chaotic period of time. And unfortunately, and I say that with all the genuine genuineness in the world, unfortunately, that's going to continue to be a massive tailwind for GOP 2.0. People are going to gravitate towards, you know what, we can't let a Joe Biden continue to give us complete confusion on the battlefield in Afghanistan, on the borders in, in, in our southern border, uh, in inflation, blah, 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 all the way through all the issues that are just being train wrecked every day. You, go ahead, Patricia. Oh, uh, I'd love to hear from you how your reception is outside of Georgia. When you go to South Carolina, when you go to New Hampshire, what are you hearing that tells you that this is worthwhile and it's worth the next chapter of your life? So the New Hampshire trip was was uh, was unbelievable. Uh, in fact, in that when we got there, right, they invited us, right. We we didn't just you know jump on a plane and and show up and start walking the streets. There was a lot. Of, we got invited by the New Hampshire Institute of Politics on St. Anselm College to speak to their students, and and it was a book book series. And then we met with all the media folks up there. They know the 2.0 story. That was the eye opening experience for me. Was that the story is out there. And there's a receptive audience. And, and what makes New Hampshire so special in the whole prime, first in the nation primary process is they have a really, really steep history in figuring out fact from fiction. They, you know, they are vetting out who really is truly going to be a leader and who can truly win something. And to me, I'm up there positioning GOP 2.0 as the winning strategy. I'm, I'm, I'm up there so early and in South Carolina early and other states. Because I want to reset Republicans' expectations as to you should expect better out of your leaders, right? Nobody would pick Joe Biden or Donald Trump to run any organization or company in this country, right? Nobody. That, I can't think of one. I, I can't look at any of my neighbors here who, who out, out the window that, that own a company that they would handpick them to replace them. But yet we, we've chosen them to run our country. We, need, we, 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 should, we should get better uh, in, as leaders. And will you be um, running for president? Say that one yeah, more time. I mean, I was, that's the question. You know, uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, I spent a lot of time traveling around New Hampshire with 
presidential candidates early on, people who thought they might be able to make a run for president. St. Anselm's College has always been a spot for potential candidates uh, to make appearances. So is there anything in the back of your mind that suggests GOP 2.0 could lead you toward uh, a presidential bid? The goal is for GOP 2.0 to significantly influence who the Republican nominee is in 2024 to, like I said a minute ago, to reset expectations. And we're certainly laying the groundwork for that to be the case. And uh, there's so much work to be done. You know, we've got to convince tens of millions of folks that this is the direction, this is the path forward for the party. And, uh, you know, we're going to take the next three years to do that. And if my name circled up in that conversation, what a great honor that would be. But that is so far from anything that me or my wife would be thinking about at this point. You know, my my to-do list is literally, you know, seven pages long right now of people I have to talk to, donors that are interested in investing in 2.0. The strategy and uh, all of that is is overwhelming, but uh, we're going to keep working hard to get the message out. So, uh, Patricia, I think we have to take that as an unqualified, I'm not saying no. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Lieutenant Governor Duncan. Yeah. Lieutenant Governor Duncan, I want to talk about this PET project. Um, And if you don't mind, I'm going to take the initials for what it stands for out of order. You want to establish for the Republican Party a respectful tone, which I think people across party lines uh, would embrace right now. Uh, Genuine empathy, another value I think people are, uh, are hungry for, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, but then conservative policies. And what I think is really important for our listeners to recognize about you is that you say in the book, and have said all along in other forums as well, you did not take issue with many of the things that Donald Trump accomplished as president, for instance, making the U.S. Supreme Court much more conservative. In many ways, it was his behavior, his rhetoric, his uh, insistence on an us or them kind of policy. People should not be lulled into thinking that you're not a solid Republican, a solid conservative. No, you're, you're spot on. I mean, I don't disagree with the majority of the policies that Donald Trump stood for. Uh, he just literally forgot to remind, you know, 350 million Americans about those policies. He just wanted to pick on people for the last, you know, six months of his campaign cycle. Uh, look, I talk a lot about what I, you, you call the PET. I, my, the, the easy short is the pet project. And on the policy side, yes, I agree with conservative policies, but I also think we need to move our feet on a couple of these things with conservative strategies like immigration, like health care. Um, these are things that we should be having real conservative conversations about instead of just, you know, sitting at the table. Or actually, we can't sit at the table. You know, in, in D.C., if you want to talk about conservative health care policy, we're not in the House. We don't have a majority in the House, the Senate or the White House. So what, what seat at the table do we have? Uh, we've got to win elections. Uh, and to do that, uh, we've got to make sure that we, we're able to connect with enough Americans to, to actually do that, win elections. So, of course, for the next year, uh, you'll continue to be the state's lieutenant governor. Uh, Can you give us a preview of the special session and of the session coming up in January um, where we might see you uh, advancing this uh, in our in our own state capitol? Yeah, so we're going to continue. You know, I I told the the, the Senate uh, a couple weeks ago uh, in a caucus retreat that, you know, what they're going to get out of me is hopefully a continued steady hand uh, putting policy over politics. And uh, we're going to continue to do that. Uh, on the special session that's coming up next week, obviously uh, taking on reapportionment, uh, we're going to, you know, our office, I've, I've guided our team to be 100 percent focused on following the letter of the law and being a proctor of the process uh, on reapportionment, which is a very complicated and, and history tells us I've never been in the room for a reapportionment session, but uh, it can sometimes become very personal as you're, you know, uh, walking, you know, lines across, uh, you know, different delegations. Uh, But, you know, hopefully we'll continue to have a good spirit down at the Capitol for the reapportionment process. Once we get into regular session, look, Jeff Duncan and his team are going to continue to focus on trying to make the lives of 11 million Georgians better and easier. We're going to continue to focus on health care in a bipartisan format. We're going to continue to focus on foster care. And, uh, you know, this big idea of the technology capital, the East Coast, has caught fire. And so we're going to continue to look for ways to, to remove, you know, barriers from folks investing in Georgia and looking for ways to better educate our kids in a 21st century global economy. So we're certainly excited and going to run through the finish line as hard as we possibly can on the job of lieutenant governor. 
Well, here's my here's my question about that. And then I know we promised we'd let you go by 930. So I want to stick to that. But uh, you've got a couple of your uh, members, leaders in the Republican uh, 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 caucus in the Senate who are running for uh, statewide office. And they're running specifically as Trump uh, Trumpers who believe the election was a fraud. I, I think you're, it strikes me you're going to have to be girding for battle in some of the fights that you take on with some of those folks who are on the opposite side from you on, on this. Yeah, I think I've earned a reputation at the Capitol as, as far as the presiding officer in the Senate as a good umpire. I call balls and strikes even on my own team, and uh, I'm going to continue to do that. And uh, I certainly have never allowed us to use the Senate floor uh, that really represents 11 million Georgians with some very serious issues. Uh, we're not going to use that as a uh, as a campaign stop every day when somebody walks up there. I'm going to use uh, the ability to shape those conversations around policies that matter. Uh, I could care less about their campaigns when I show up to work and gavel in at 10 o'clock. Uh, I care about the, uh, <laughs> the, the the policies that move forward, and I'm going to I'm going to hold true to that. Uh, I I think any oh. sort of any sort of attachment to the to the Trumpism approach, uh, I only have to point them back to two individuals that unfortunately made the same mistake, and that was David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. Uh, they hired by default Donald Trump as their campaign manager in the runoff. And unfortunately, if you're a Republican, you know what I know, and that's that didn't work. Patricia, it's going to be really interesting to watch Jeff Duncan with the special session and then the regular session coming up, too, isn't it? I am suddenly so excited for the special session and the regular <laughs> session. I really am looking forward to this. Yeah, me I too. Oh, uh, well. As we promised, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, we're going to uh, let you get to work on other things. But uh, we want to remind people the book is GOP 2.0, How the 2020 Election Can Lead to a Better Way Forward for America's Conservative Party. Uh, We really appreciate your taking time to be with us today. Um, And best of luck. We'll watch you in the special session starting next week. That's great. Thanks, Bill and Patricia. Have a great weekend. Go Braves. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back with more. Patricia Murphy and I continue now um, just to give you a little bit uh, more of an introduction, uh, Patricia. As I said, you are a reporter on politics for the AJC, but you write the political insider column that appears on Wednesdays and Sundays, and you oversee The Jolt, which is online every morning at AJC.com. I want to talk in just a minute about the Atlanta mayor's race, which your column that you just posted, which will appear in the Sunday paper uh, uh, online uh, today. Um, But before we do that, uh, Patricia Duncan's... Look, we thrive on talking about who's going to run for what office. So Duncan said a lot of things we can unpack about where Republicans are today and where he'd like to see the party go. But it is, it is noteworthy that he doesn't shy away from, it, from this notion that he could see himself as the candidate for the, the GOP 2.0 uh, uh, advocates for president in 2024. You know, I am just so fascinated by our conversation because Jeff Duncan has really found his voice by leaving his job. This is the first time I have ever understood who Jeff Duncan really is and why he's different from every other Republican man in a golf shirt. Um, Not to be disparaging because I know many and I'm (laughs) fond of all of them. (laughs) But he really articulated... Um, his core belief system and why it's important to him, why it should be important to other people and why it's different from what we're seeing. And I have covered a ton of presidential campaigns. I've spent a lot of time in New Hampshire and Iowa. Um, And I have to say, and I know Georgia Republicans will find this hard to believe, um, there is a constituency for that Jeff Duncan brand of Republicanism. Um, When you're looking at a presidential campaign and a slate of candidates, there's always an appetite for a counterpoint to the prevailing view of the party. And he is the earliest. He's um, in many ways the most articulate and the most 
um, backed up by events, the most logical person for um, anybody in a Republican Party in a different part of the country looking for an alternative vision. Jeff Duncan is presenting that vision very early and very cleanly. It's very tidy. Um, he can travel. He will. Uh, he can give a speech, and he uh, would be a good person on a debate stage um, as they're as they're planning this out. And he's obviously got uh, an appetite for it as well. So it'll be interesting. Yeah. I think everything you just said is absolutely uh, correct. He's the first guy to get out there and really articulate this vision in in a in a very uh, appealing to some to those who are not Trumpers uh, way. And because superficiality does matter, he's a good looking young guy, uh, you know. And and voters do they. Patricia, don't wince. That matters to some extent, I think. <laughs> I can't say that, but you go ahead and you can say that, Bill. It's true. <laughs> um, he's, an appealing looking, he's an appealing candidate in many ways. But, but again, as I said to him, we, we, we don't want to uh, mislead people into thinking he's a moderate Republican. He may be moderate in some ways, but he's, he's, he's conservative Republican, and he has conservative values, as he himself says. He's very conservative, um, but it's also true that he is an absolute outlier in this Georgia Republican Party. And I think there were right. many outstanding questions about whether he could even win re-election. And uh, he's never said that he was worried about that, um, but certainly the headwinds were very real against him. So looking ahead to his own future, um, the 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 Trump wing of the Georgia Party is dominant. It feels ascending, and um, there may not have been space for a Jeff Duncan Republicanism here, but there may be around the country. It's an irony of uh, national politics, um, but I can cer- I certainly see a path for Jeff Duncan um, on the day after uh, he's no longer the lieutenant governor here. We will watch that and uh, see how it develops. It's, it is very, very interesting. Um, by the way, before we turn to the Atlanta election, I, I did note you, you, we talked uh, briefly with him uh, about his feelings about uh, SB 202, the, the election law, and um, he acknowledged that he thinks there are good things and, and things that are not uh, particularly winning in, in that law. And of course, as you pointed out, he refused to preside over the session when the first uh, iteration of that bill, which was much more extreme than what they finally passed, uh, came out. But I did notice, Patricia, that um, one impact of this law is now going to be put into effect. The state election board has now uh, agreed that if you want an absentee ballot in uh, Georgia, you're going to have to print out and fill out the form and send it in. You can't do it online. And that may seem like a fairly innocuous measure, but the fact is there are many people, number one, even if they have access to a computer, don't have access to a printer. They're going to have to, the, the notion that you cannot do something like that online as the entire world moves <laughs> to more and more of the functions that we uh, deal with being online, uh, that's a prohibitive part of this law. Well, I think it's one of many small changes that Democrats have characterized as sort of death by a thousand cuts. Um, you can't just apply online for the application. You have to print it off. I, I personally do not own a printer either. <laughs> I mean, I scan yeah. every document and upload it to banks, to credit card agencies, to mortgage companies, you know, so. Um, uh, and it's just so uh, counterintuitive to what every other organization in America is doing, looking for convenience and security at the same time. Um, but Democrats point to this. They point to the ballot um, boxes, uh, the drop boxes around town uh, that have been severely limited in larger counties. Um, all, is any one of them uh, evidence of voter suppression? Not necessarily, but put together, it just creates one, two, three little barriers that really can add up. When you have a very close election, those can add up and make a meaningful difference. Absolutely. All right, let's talk about the um, uh, Atlanta mayor's race. And, and I, I have to say that I've gotten notes from, from a couple of listeners, not a lot, but a few who've said, gee, you haven't spent enough time talking about the Atlanta mayor's race. And I think that's a fair observation. 
my response to that is, you know, we're statewide. I mean, we have stations all over the state that uh, listen to this show, fortunately. And, and so we've tried to spend some time on it, but we don't want it to become the dominant uh, theme of our show. That said, it is a terribly important election. As the headline to your column uh, online today says, you call it the most important election of Atlanta's lifetime. Why? So going into the next year, uh, whoever is the next mayor is going to be immediately smacked in the face with the reality that within a year they could have half a city. I mean, there is a very real effort for the Buckhead neighborhood to split off from Atlanta and form its own city. Um, It will be up to the next mayor of Atlanta to um, immediately start to lobby within the legislature, not to... Uh, let that happen. Um, if it goes to a referendum, the General Assembly will need to approve that for a referendum. That would go to Buckhead voters in 2022. Um, it will then be up to the mayor to campaign against that to keep their own city whole, um, while also balancing just the incredible needs of the rest of the city. Um, so you look at the history of Atlanta, um, this could be a watershed moment, and it's going to be up to the next mayor to keep their own city whole and convince voters that Atlanta is worth keeping whole. Um, and uh, to me, it, it just, it's so hugely important. Um, and we have 41% of voters in our last poll undecided. And so I wrote that column not to tell people who to vote for, but to get out your computer, get out your pencil and start making some decisions. Yeah, and and, and you uh, quote Bill Torpy, your colleague, uh, another columnist paper who says, start paying attention, wake up Atlanta. What what is this about? It's hard for you know. Um, I, Jim Galloway uh, early this week uh, made an observation that I think may have some uh, uh, validity. He said, "When you're this close to an election, a week or so away, and you have forty one percent undecided, um, you're probably looking at a great number of those people who are not undecided. They're just not interested in voting. And the question is, why um, is it that the is it that there's too many other things happening in the world around us? Is the pandemic still preoccupying us? Have the candidates somehow not made a case to the voters out there? None of them have somehow electrified voter. What, what's your speculation on that? And that's all it is, is speculation on any of our parts. Yeah, I think it's a number of things. First of all, I think there are a lot of new voters in Atlanta. We have a young city, um, a number of people even who have moved in from the suburbs into Atlanta. They don't know these candidates really well. It's also a gigantic field. You know, you've got more than a dozen candidates running, five kind of in the top tier. Um, And most of those things will be totally new to people, even if you lived in Atlanta your whole life. Do you know who the Atlanta City Council president is uh, in Felicia Moore? Um, Maybe, maybe not. People just don't pay enough attention to their local government, frankly. Um, And then also, uh, Kasim Reed was a very late entrant into this race. And uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms uh, announced relatively late in her term that she would not be running. So it was late to form a lot of new names, a huge group, um, and then a World Series that's going to continue to keep this off of the front pages, I hate to say, Um, and and maybe even voter fatigue. It is like the last election never ended, and people in Atlanta, and by the way, there are dozens of mayoral contests all over the state coming up. Um, These are all happening on Tuesday, city council races. Um, commission races, uh, Atlanta public school board races, tons and tons and tons. So my column is just go do your homework. It's time and it's important. Do, do you, so if we t- assume there's a top tier of candidates for mayor, say five people, six people, um, we know that your polling at the AJC has put Felicia Moore and Kasim Reed up there in the 20s and kind of going, Felicia Moore, a little bit ahead of Kasim Reed typically, but it's almost margin of error stuff. The question really becomes, is there, an, have we been able to, to um, have the candidates expressed different enough opinions on the issues out there that people have a substantive choice. I mean, we know when you're voting for a Republican or a Democratic member of the U.S. Senate, you know the differences. I can't help but wonder, 
if we really have seen um, stark enough differences among the candidates on issues like crime, on issues like affordable housing, to, to give us a chance to, to say which, which people are, are making decisions voters are going to like most. I think that's a really, really important point, because these candidates are all Democrats. Um, they are kind of uh, in, occupy a very narrow window of the spectrum between um, uh, mainline Democrats and maybe a little bit more progressive Democrats. That means that the real differences are going to be on personality and on presentation um, in such an expensive media market. They just, most of them don't have the money to be up on TV frequently. And so it's going to require people to really dig in and see, can I, can I notice the difference in a mayoral forum online? Can I notice the difference in their mailing pieces? Um, and so it takes a lot of work for voters to get to know these candidates. Most likely this will go to a runoff in Georgia. That same rule applies. You got to get 50 percent plus one vote on Election Day or else this will go to a runoff. Um, right now, our top tier, as you said, Felicia Moore, city council president, Kasim Reed, the former mayor, um, Andre Dickens, city councilman. We're starting to hear a lot about him. Sharon Gay, um, an attorney, private attorney who's done a lot of work for the city. And then Antonio Brown, I think, kind of rounds up. Uh, the back end. Brown is probably the most progressive, um, also the least known. And so uh, voters have some work to do between now and then. Um, So I think there's one aspect of this race that maybe says something really important and positive about the people of Atlanta. Um, When Mary Norwood uh, took on first Shirley Franklin, then Kasim Reed, Mary Norwood, a white candidate in a field of primarily black candidates for mayor, she was uh, able to propel herself forward largely because white voters uh, uh, chose her over the African-Americans running for mayor. Sharon Gay has certainly been an accomplished uh, public servant in the sense that working in her private law firm and then working as a as a a chief executive for uh, Mayor Bill Campbell. She's certainly done a lot of uh, important work on behalf of the city. She knows her stuff. What's interesting is that she remains in the very, very low single digits in terms of uh, uh, voter appeal, at least in terms of the polling. it, It feels like maybe we've reached a point that even as the demographics of Atlanta shift and more and more white voters are moving into the city, race doesn't matter so much anymore. Isn't isn't that a wonderful thing to imagine, Patricia? <laughs> I totally agree. You mentioned this to me, and I said, well, you should have called me yesterday, and it could have been my Sunday column. <laughs> you had given me your idea. Um, but it does feel like Atlanta's a little bit past that required dynamic of one black candidate and one white candidate, and y'all just go duke it out amongst the, amongst the two of you. Um, it doesn't mean that race is not a factor because it really is always a factor. But it more it's more about how each candidate um, relates to race, uh, presents that as an issue, and it comes down to more subtle um, issues like criminal justice reform, the role of racism in our criminal justice system. Um, but it, Atlanta, I think, has finally gotten past the black-white requirement, that dynamic that these must be our two candidates, because our top uh, three candidates certainly are African-American. Um, and Sharon Gay, lesser known, has simply not caught fire in a way that she might have uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's do this. Let's go to our, get to our final break of the show. And I have a lot more that I'd like to talk with Patricia Murphy about. We'll do that after these messages. Patricia Murphy Greg Bluestein wrote a piece that we can't have to talk about. He, his, he says that David Perdue is seriously considering challenging Brian Kemp. And here's the lead of his story. Former U.S. Senator David Perdue is seriously, key word, considering mounting a Republican primary challenge against Brian Kemp, according to a number of GOP activists and operatives. In recent weeks, Purdue has called donors and other allies to float the idea, according to eight people who spoke on the condition of an anonymity to discuss confidential matters. Several of them said he's conflicted about a run, while others say he's leaning toward a challenge. That 
is really, and the Kemp people have responded by saying, if he were to do that, it would be a betrayal. Patricia? Yes, I don't think there's, I don't think there are words in the English language to describe (laughs) the heat of the scorched earth policy that we would see if there were a primary challenge to Brian Kemp from David Perdue. I spoke with a Republican, a Kemp ally yesterday, and this is a direct quote, I will spend the rest of my life destroying David Perdue if he does this. Um, the emotion absolutely practically burst my phone into flames. I mean, this would be so ugly. And I think Perdue would really have to consider that um, as he makes his decision. Um, it could really destroy the Republican Party from the inside out. Um, uh, each man, I think, believes they are the only Republican who can win. Um, and that puts them in the point of serious disagreement. Well, but okay, but here's a question about that. I mean, we obviously know that Donald Trump is encouraging David Perdue to run and that Donald Trump will continue, and I'm, he'll find some way when he's here for the World Series game to attack Brian Kemp somehow, I'm sure, even as he yeah. attacks Stacey Abrams because it was Stacey Abrams' fault the All-Star game left, which we know, by the way, is not the case. Um, so if you've got candidates on the Republican uh, uh, in the Republican column running in primaries, um, like a Burt Jones, who are pro-Trump, um, where does that leave them in terms of Brian Kemp as opposed to a David Perdue? Well, it's a great question. You know, it's one of the many questions that would be raised if Perdue got into this race. I think the biggest question would be, um, how is he so different from Brian Kemp on the policies other than um, this question of the 2020 election that Brian Kemp stood up for um, and refused to overturn for the president. It's really the only major difference between the two of them. um, And uh, that has really animated uh, former President Trump's interest in a challenge to Brian Kemp. Um, It would also, it has to be said, leave Stacey Abrams or whoever is running for uh, governor on the Democratic side, leave them with a big bag of popcorn, raising money and watching the show. And uh, that's exactly what happened in the Senate race for Raphael Warnock. He did not have a challenge and he did not even get challenged um, by Republicans until the Republicans were done beating each other up in that primary. And so um, it creates a lot of dynamics that would be very difficult, I think. Um, But again, if you're the Republican who thinks you can win Georgia, um, you might be thinking you should do that. One of the complications, of course, is that as far as we know, uh, David Perdue's cousin, Sonny, former governor, former ag commissioner under President Trump, uh, is still in the running to become chancellor of the University System of Georgia, job that pays a lot of money, we should point out. Um, and, the, you know, I suspect that if David Perdue takes on Brian Kemp in a primary, Sonny Perdue's chances of being named chancellor diminish dramatically, Patricia. <laughs> I don't think you're even going to make the Christmas card list if, you, if any Perdue runs for any office against Brian Kemp, let alone a very nice spot at the top of the university system. Um, Sonny Perdue and David Perdue, you know, they're not best friends, but certainly there is a Purdue camp. There's a Purdue Power Center there in Middle Georgia. Um, And this would, again, um, it just feels like one of those races where uh, people would take names, make an enemies list, and keep it handy really for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So I want to say that I am fully aware that nobody much cares what predictions I personally make about anything, and that's fine. They, They shouldn't because I'm just a guy who talks for a living. But I said back when there was talk that uh, David Ralston was looking at running for U.S. Senate, it wasn't going to happen. I never believed it. I will say right now, I would be shocked if David Perdue actually follows up and gets in this race. It strikes me that, as you've already pointed out, that would cause such chaos in the Republican Party and for David Perdue for whatever political future he might have. I just don't see it, Patricia. But again, I just talk. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but people love to hear you talk, Phil. That's why you have a show. Well, well, what makes it hardest for me to believe is that when we watch David Perdue campaigning in 2020 and 2021, 
he did not seem to like it very much. Um, Sonny Perdue is a man who loves a campaign event. And by the end of the 2021 race, (laughs) it was only Sonny Perdue campaigning for David Perdue because David Perdue had been exposed to COVID and was in quarantine. So um, David Perdue was not a happy warrior on the campaign trail. And and that's really one of the biggest reasons Um, you can see somebody who loves the arena when they're in it. And I, we weren't getting that off of David Perdue by the end of his race. Um, but anything could happen, and he really is taking a look at it. So we're going to have to see. We are running out of time, and I don't have enough time for you to go into depth on this, but I do think it's worth at least a couple of thoughts from you on it since you spent so much time covering uh, Washington and the Hill. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about how Donald Trump, how how Jeff Duncan thinks Donald Trump is uh, is is, a, is bad for the Republican Party, but uh, to the extent that that President Biden is not able, as of right now, to bring together Democrats on the Hill in either his infrastructure or his social policy uh, measure. Um, it strikes me that that is going to play its potential to play as big a role in how Democrats fare next year as anything Donald Trump does. Yes, I mean the Democrats uh, with President Biden at the head of the party. It, to me, it looks like they're trying to pack an elephant into a carry-on bag. Like they're trying something that is so hard. Why are you doing that? Um, it's not over till it's over. I never count Nancy Pelosi out until um, the last gavel's down. So um, they think they have a framework. It's taking a lot longer than it was supposed to. The same thing happened with Obamacare. Um, we'll have to stay tuned, but this sausage making is not pretty. It's not pretty at all. Patricia Murphy, this is why we love having you on the show and reading your column. Packing an elephant into a carry-on bag. (laughs) Thanks for a really terrific conversation uh, today, Patricia. And thank all of you for another uh, listening, for another week of Political Rewind. We've enjoyed uh, every show we've done this week and are so glad you've been with us. Our thanks to Sam Burmistaz, our producer, Sarah Callis, who's working as our temporary producer, and uh, Jesse Neiswanger, our engineer. We'll be back with a brand new show on Monday. We'll talk about the Atlanta election. We'll talk about the start of the special session and a lot more. In the meantime, have a good weekend. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear your mask when it's appropriate. And uh, if you're eligible for a booster shot, they're available right now. So is the flu shot. So go get those. See you on Monday.